Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Before we get into today's episode, I recognize that I haven't said anything about the insurrection that happened at the Capitol on January 6th, and I wanted to take a moment to read something that I posted to my Instagram and just talk a little bit about it with you and how I've been doing. So I wrote, I haven't posted anything specific about this week's events because I've been in shock. Not surprised shock, because I knew something like this was coming, like literal shock, like not being able to regain full control of my faculties shocked after watching footage of hatred and violence. Our nervous systems have been through so much in the last four years, and after Biden won the election, I felt my system settle in a way that was impossible while Donald Trump was in office. I forgot what ease could feel like. Wednesday's events brought back the physical tension, the cortisol flood, the jittery feeling, and I remembered I've spent the last four years feeling this way. And then I remembered many Black, Indigenous, and people of color spend their entire lives feeling this way. I'm saddened in a deep way that doesn't have words. I grieve for the country that never really was. I mourn for the liberties we were promised but never freely given. We are a nation in pain. I believe that before we can have revolutionary change, there must be struggle, but this shit is so hard. My soul is aching for a rest that may not come, but I will find rest amidst the unrest. I will find joy despite the anger. I will have quiet beyond the noise. I have to, because I have an obligation to use my privilege to create change. To those who think therapists should stay out of politics, show me one person whose mental health was not affected by this past week. We are all hurting, and something major needs to change. White supremacy hurts everyone, and it must be stopped. So that's what I have to say to you today, too. You know, I thought about what, what do I say to my listeners that hasn't already been said. So I'm, I'm glad that we've been having conversations about how dangerous Donald Trump is. We've been having conversations about white supremacy and what to do in order to counteract it. And... It's unfortunately, it's just more of the same, but I just wanted to take a moment and let you know how I was doing and also give you wishes for rest wherever you can find it. I was literally just with my physical therapist and, and just crying and just sad about everything. And, and normally we talk through the whole thing, but she just let me, she just let me rest. And so I wish that for you as well, whatever you can do to find that rest, even in small moments. And now on to today's episode. Hello, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. I am a psychotherapist and a teacher and a speaker and obvia podcaster here in Chicago, Illinois. And I'm so happy that you've joined us today. Today's conversation, I think, is going to be really cool and hopefully will feel expansive to folks who have maybe not explored some different relationship styles. So I'm just going to say that as a little teaser up front. <laughs> Before we get into the meat of this episode, just wanted to invite you to connect with me on social media. Instagram is my fave way to connect and you can find me at Head Heart Therapy. You can also, of course, find us on Facebook, either at Head Heart Therapy or at Wounded Healer, which is W-O-U-N-D-E-D-H-E-A-L-R. I know. I regret it, but whatever. We're here now, so let's just go with it. So let me introduce you today's guest. So Jessica Fern is a psychotherapist, public speaker, and trauma and relationship expert. 
In her international private practice, Jessica works with individuals, couples, and people in multiple partner relationships who no longer want to be limited by their reactive patterns, cultural conditioning, insecure attachment styles, and past traumas. She helps them to embody new possibilities in life and love. Jessica is the author of the book Polysecure, Attachment Trauma and Non-Monogamy. So please welcome Jessica Fern. Hello, Jessica. Welcome to Conversations with the Wounded Healer. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Yay! We've not met before, and I'm super excited to talk to you, not only about your new book, but about yourself as well, all the things. So why don't you start off by telling people who you are and roughly what you do? Yes. Well, my name is Jessica Fern, and I'm a psychotherapist and coach. And I just wrote the book, Polysecure, which came out in October. Congrats. Thank you. And so that book is really highlighting my specific niche with working with people who are in non-traditional relationships. So consensual non-monogamy, polyamory, and everything in between. Awesome. And I heard about you from Tristan Terramino, who is a friend of mine. I saw her advertise your podcast and was like, ooh, I can't wait to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, I really always like to find out how people came into being as a healer. And so I'm, I'm curious your origin story. What made you go into being a therapist? Yeah, it's one of those things that like was a circuitous route and yet there all the time, if that makes sense. Yeah, right? sure does. Because I actually started therapy counseling school first at Naropa University in mm. Boulder, Colorado, and I dropped out. <laughs> Really? (laughs) I dropped out. I joke I'm a Naropa school dropout. And the program just wasn't the right fit, which is a big surprise. And so it led me on a different path for several years that then eventually led me back to therapy. And so the dropping out of counseling school the first time led me to go to conflict resolution school. And get a master's in conflict resolution. That is the opposite of Naropa, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was. I was like in Washington, D.C. Yeah, it's like this wow. couldn't be more different. And I was studying genocide, which brought me to Rwanda. Mm. And I was doing research in Rwanda and studying genocide, one of the most horrific human experiences that happens, right? Yep. And here I am sort of working on a mass, it's a bigger international level, And yet I was interviewing all of these people who, instead of killing during the genocide, they were rescuers, they saved lives. Mm. And there was just such a link in all of their stories that the reason they did what they did had to do with the narratives that they were raised with and the beliefs Mm. that they held and the attachment experiences they had. And I would talk to people who killed during the genocide and Mm. they had the absence of the presence of love and role models in their lives. And so I was like, oh, okay, it's time to go back to doing therapy. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So it was interesting that I went really macro to go micro. Mm hmm. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. And so let's talk about your book a little bit. And I'm guessing this will also lead into talking about more in depth about your attachment history and all of that sort of stuff too. So tell folks about the book. Yeah. So the book is Polysecure, Attachment, Trauma, and Non-Monogamy. And, you know, it came out of my experience with clients, working with clients who are most of them opening up, but not everyone was new to 
polyamory, Mm -hmm. but just seeing where people were struggling and the common ways of talking about jealousy or advising people just not to do non-monogamy because it's hard just didn't fit. You know, it wasn't sufficient. And I was realizing, oh, people are melting down because they're having attachment ruptures, (laughs) because they're having to deal with a new paradigm of relationship and their whole attachment system is in flux and no one knows how to deal with that to no one's fault. Mm -hmm. And that when either I would work with individuals to heal their own attachment or work with partners to work on creating more secure attachment in their relationship things changed. (laughs) Polly got easy suddenly. Right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. So the book's really looking at that of applying attachment theory to polyamory, which as far as we know, really hasn't happened before in terms of a book. Yeah, I was going to say there were, I didn't get through all of it yet. Sorry, I didn't read the book in a week. But (laughs) (laughs) but from what I did read, I really do love how it's like a modern take on attachment because attachment is a really old theory. And actually, let's before we get into that, do you want to describe to listeners what attachment is in case anybody is, is unfamiliar <laughs> with that someone term? Someone does not know, right? Or you've heard me say it 20 times already. Yeah. So attachment is the human biological and psychological need to basically be loved, right? To be cared for, to be attuned to, not just to have the physical needs of food and shelter, but the needs for care. And depending on how well our parents or caretakers are able to meet our needs, we either feel safe and secure with them, within ourselves, within the world, or if they were inconsistent in meeting our needs or not even there at all to meet our needs, or scary to us in some way where there's trauma, then we happen to have insecure attachment styles that tend to be more pulled back, more dismissive, withdrawn, or mm-hmm. more hypervigilant, leaning in and anxious, mm-hmm. or what's called disorganized or fearful avoidant, which sort of vacillates between the two. So that's the quick primer on attachment, right? Yeah. And I guess what's important is that two things feel really important is that Our childhood experiences with attachment will create the blueprint for our adult experiences in romantic partnerships. But if we have an insecurely attached past, we don't have to suffer from that all our life. We really can heal and have a securely functioning adulthood. That's literally my experience. I've said even before I really understood what attachment was, that my husband really created that unconditional love that I had never experienced before Mm -hmm. in my own childhood. And then I just came out on the podcast as polyamorous. (laughs) There are various, yeah, there are various like practical and psychological reasons why it was hard for me. But so I can share that now. And, And what I found, I have a secure attachment with him and I have a different attachment style with different partners. And you talk very specifically about that in the book, which I thought was awesome. Yeah. And it can be really surprising to people because people just Mm -hmm. assume, oh, well, I'm secure here. So I'll be secure in all my other partnerships or they never felt anxious. Maybe they always were the one that was more of the island and withdrawn. And now suddenly they're like feeling anxiety for the first time. So yes, we can have different attachment styles with different partners. And you identify as polyamorous as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. The thing that I tell people about polyamory is the one rule about polyamory is that everybody does it differently. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I'm I'm curious your origin story, how you kind of came to recognize that that was 
who because I think it's who we are. I almost like to think of it as like a sexual orientation. And I know that's not exactly the right fit, but it felt innate to me anyway. So I'm curious your yeah. And I'll speak to that first thing you're saying, though, is that what I see is there is a difference. People, some feel that it is poly by orientation, how I'm wired. I didn't choose this. This is how I am. Same way with sexual orientation. And then a lot of people do come to it more as lifestyle choice. Like yeah. philosophically, it makes sense. Yep. And it's what they believe in. And that pairing sometimes between a poly's orientation versus choice can be difficult. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I was young. I look back now and realize, oh, I wasn't totally monogamous when I first started out as a teenager. I would get into these sort of like I was in an emotional triad with a couple, but didn't there was no language for that. So there was non-monogamy happening for a long time in adolescence and 20s, but then I was monogamously married. And then that was like a very official demarcation of like, oh, we are now opening up into polyamory. Yeah. And even though that marriage was not traditional in so many ways, you know, Hmm. we were never emotionally exclusive, even though we were sexually exclusive for years. Hmm. I'm curious if you have a theory too as to why non-monogamy seems to be having an explosion. Like it's it is a surgeons, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Yeah. I mean, I think it had a surgeons like in the 60s. Like my uncle was literally at Woodstock and my aunt and uncle like were never monogamous, you know, and we knew that as a family, but it was just sort of the thing they did, but it didn't have a place the way like we're seeing polyamory. There's a lot of reasons why Robin Trask would be a great person to answer this question. I feel like she has more of the historical context and people like her who have been you know, she was like on Montel Williams like 20 years ago, like showing her family. You know? oh, wow. So I think there's been certain people that have been willing to bring this more into the limelight for mm-hmm. one. I think the divorce rate has gotten so high that people finally are questioning marriage, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I think as a byproduct of part of the feminist movements, part of the social justice movements, not complete movements, but is just really starting to deconstruct all of these forms of massive discourse that say this is how the world is and that's it. Yeah. And I love how you, I didn't even think about that, but bringing a social justice lens into this, like the patriarchy needs men to stay in power. And what better way to have them stay in power than to make the woman like your property? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? What, was that the origin of the whole purpose of marriage? Or I think that's what they talk about in Sex at Dawn. So, I mean, that's what I have read. And I should say the Sex at Dawn was actually the, the book when I was reading it. That was really what brought me to open up my monogamous marriages, I was like, oh, this is me. Wow. Okay. This mm-hmm. is, yeah. But in that book and others, they talk about, yeah, that paternity was not really tracked in the same way until we started to own property and it mattered who the father was. Yes. And so then women were expected to be monogamous, but not necessarily men. Yeah. In my limited experience, so there's a difference between polyamory, Mm non-monogamy, being a swinger, 
being open. There's all these yes. different things which we can talk about. And I'd love for you to define those for listeners because I think it's a good education. What I found in my limited experience with the swinger community was that that felt very patriarchal while polyamory felt very Feminine. matriarchal. Yeah. 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 I have a chapter in the book where I even make a chart because I think of it as <laughs> of two different axes. One is how sexually exclusive and non-exclusive and then how emotionally exclusive and non-exclusive. That's genius to put it on an axis like that. Well, so to give an example, right, with swingers, so monogamy would be, you know, high on sexual exclusivity and usually high on emotional exclusivity, right? If you're talking to someone else about your feelings, you're considered emotionally cheating a lot of the time, right? Right. Or depending on someone else other than your spouse emotionally. And swingers are more sexually non-exclusive, but they maintain that coupledom of like, we are still the unit. We come first. We're kind of emotionally exclusive. Many swingers do want to have a connection with the people that they're playing with, but it's not about falling in love usually. So polyamory is on the other end of usually sexually non-exclusive, but then emotionally non-exclusive, where the intention is I'm going to fall in love with multiple people and have concurrent partners in mm -hmm. that way. Yeah. And from an attachment perspective, I imagine there are benefits from that emotional and sexual non-exclusivity. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I mean, it's almost cliche at this point, but it takes a village to raise a child is what we've been hearing, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> is what was, a lot of people want to say and is true in many ways. It can be very similar for romance and sex and attachment as adults that one person cannot meet all of our attachment needs, nor should they be responsible for one person's attachment needs. And so having multiple partners can really fulfill that. Right. No wonder the divorce rate has been so high when monogamy was more, I guess, expected. Yeah. I mean, Esther Perel talks about that, like what you got from an entire village is you're now expected to get from one person. And so just the expectations on modern marriage are really unrealistic. Mm -hmm. And yet we all want it, right? We want our partner to be our sexual god or goddess and our financial companion and our travel companion and all of those things. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah. I'm curious because I want to talk about healing attachment, yeah. but yeah. I'd love to know how you view yourself and your work. Do you consider yourself a healer? Mm. I hesitate with that word. I think of myself more as a Sherpa than a healer. I mean, mm -hmm. I've been called a healer my whole life. That was something that my family kind of would call me. Mm. And while on one hand, it's a nice compliment, it always was like, well, it's not me, you know? And I think that's where I struggle with that word is that the work I engage in is, of course, healing, but it doesn't feel like I'm the one doing that healing onto others, mm -hmm. right? It's like my clients are healing themselves, but I'm a guide in that process or a companion in that process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's how I see it. It's a very common answer. Yeah. Yeah. It's I'm funny. sure it is. Yeah. Asking the same question a, a thousand times you get, you do get the same answers over and over. It's totally. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm curious about the term wounded healer. It's funny. That resonates more. That tracks. <laughs> yeah, it does. It resonates more. 
Are you familiar with the Carolyn Mace archetype cards? Her, yes, but not her cards. Yeah, she has these great, this deck. And then, you know, her system in general talks about all of us having um, four different survival archetypes. And one of them is the child. And there's different facets, though. You can have like the eternal child or the nature child or the orphan child, the wounded mm. child, right? And that has the, that's definitely my variation of the child. And the wounded child grows up to want to share what it learned in order to help others on their journey. And so that I really resonate with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So shifting into this space of supporting your clients in healing attachment, and I'm, I'm fully in support of that too. Even those of us on the show who've called ourselves healers and stepped into that, it's still from the same place. That's why, that's why language is so inefficient. It really yeah. doesn't necessarily convey the same thing. So just thinking about healing attachment, I know you have some methods essentially to support people through that. How do you walk people through healing attachment? And that's a big question, wherever you want to take that. <laughs> totally. <laughs> that one needs a moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it depends on the attachment style. I will say that it depends on the experience that the people have had, you know, so just even very simply, if someone is more on the withdrawn, it's a lot about creating the safety to move in, right? And if someone is more preoccupied and constantly grasping, it's about creating more of a sense of self and being able to lean back, right? If someone's in the vacillating, they usually need help with just stabilizing an inner sense of safety. So I work a lot, but I love using internal family systems, inner parts work. So I treat the attachment styles like a part that we can work with, we can talk to, we can negotiate with, <laughs> and can be unburdened and sort of transformed. Mm. But in the book, I use the acronym HEARTS to talk about ways of sort of healing or working through attachment in partnership or even alone. Mm. Yes, heart. So H is for here. It's all about being present. So whether that's being present in relationship, but a quality of presence, not just a physical presence, and then or about being present with oneself and all the things that that means and how, you know, when there's an attachment disruption, often people can be very dissociated from themselves, even ironically, mm -hmm. if they're hyper focused <laughs> on someone or what they're getting and not getting, you know. So the here is about embodiment. Mm -hmm. And then this is funny. Am I going to remember my own acronym? <laughs> <laughs> I can pull up the book. And you right. me too. The uh, express delight is the E. And so that's sort of like words of affirmation, but it's more than just that, you know, from an attachment perspective, it's sort of that look in someone's eyes. That's just like, you're amazing to me. That like glow and beam of yeah. love and care and warmth. And so the importance of having expressed delight in our relationships, but then also with ourself, mm -hmm. just feeling like I like my own beingness and I want to be in this experience as me is huge, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. A is attunement, the quality of tuning in to self or other. R is rituals, and that can be like mundane routines, like the way we take care of ourselves, the way we have routines and partnership, the things that we do, and also like bigger rituals like rites of passage, you know, which could be ceremonial, whether that's with self or other, right? And then T is turning towards after conflict. It's all about 
how do we manage conflict in relationship? Mm -hmm. Conflict is inevitable. Ruptures are inevitable, but how do we repair? And then with self, it's how do I manage my triggers and how do I manage my inner self-critic? How do I talk to myself when I fall short of my own standards or make a mistake in the world? Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the art because that's what I've seen in my experience watching people enter into non-monogamy part of what doesn't work is expecting that there be mm -hmm. no jealousy and not anticipating that there will be conflict. And the thing that I said to my husband when we started this process was we are going to hurt each other and we just have to promise to come back at the end of the day mm -hmm. and talk about it and be there. And that that has been the glue that has really kept us together through the, the difficult times. Yes, that's really well said. Yeah, the commitment to working through things. I just mm -hmm. had a client just a few hours ago who was like kind of complaining about how in a lot of times in non-monogamy people kind of can just leave really easily because yeah. you're mm -hmm. like, oh, I'll just get another partner. Like I don't have to stay to work through the issues with you. Yeah. And that's going to really be difficult attachment wise. <laughs> right. And not even from a an intimate relationship standpoint, but I'm also thinking about rupture and repair in terms of our client relationships and, yes. and how few places in our lives we have that modeled, yes. right? Like I've had some conflicts with some of my clients this year, partly because I'm going through trauma right now too. <laughs> right, yeah. And the ones who are interested in showing up and repairing and maintaining the attachment, that's that's when we've had even stronger relationships after this. But some folks think that if there's something wrong in therapy, that means that I'm it's a bad the therapist, therapist or exactly. right. Mm -hmm, Instead mm -hmm. of, wow, this is a really wonderful opportunity to work through mm -hmm. the thing that's probably shown up before and probably will show up again. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to are you woo-woo, first of all, before I, I ask can this question? Be, yeah. You can be, okay. So when I think about the learning that I have experienced through polyamory, I think there's some like soul work that's mm -hmm. happening and not just repairing this relationship in this lifetime, but it's it's there are wounds that are so old. There are things that are, I mean, it feels ancient. I spoke about this a couple episodes ago, that trauma that I experienced with a partner led me toward healing sexual abuse from my childhood that I wasn't even completely aware of. So I'm curious if you've personally experienced any of that deep soul type healing or if you've walked people through that as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I do think that any healing is going to be soul healing too, especially when we're talking about these psychological, relational mm -hmm. wounds that then affect our relationship with the universe and whether we feel like the universe is a safe and fair place to be in or not. I think for me, it felt like my soul is poly. Like to experience the ability to truly love more than one person at one time in a romantic context, because we really accept and allow it with friends or family or while having children. multiple children, mm -hmm. right? But to really feel that capacity in myself and its difficulty, and it wasn't all easy to push beyond certain limits, feels very spiritual, so to speak, mm, yeah. not, right? Not just relational. I mean, it felt like it was expanding a certain spiritual capacity in myself. And there's times that I don't have more than one partner 
And it was helpful to be like, oh, yeah, my soul's poly. And on the relative reality, I might not always have more than one partner just because mm-hmm. of life. Right. Yeah. COVID is one example. <laughs> COVID is one example. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, there's, I don't know. I'm just all about the soul healing piece these days. And I feel like there is a shift in consciousness right now happening. And that also could be part of why polyamory is coming more into the forefront and being more accepted. And also, I wasn't even going to ask about this, but I'm curious, just thinking about like expanding consciousness and the barriers to expanding consciousness, one being organized religion, specifically more like evangelical type religions and this like split right now, essentially from like evangelicals versus like crazy liberal people. Have you seen folks who suffer religious trauma and that has impacted their attachment and the way they show up in relationships? That is huge. I'm so glad you're asking that because it's almost like something that I forget that I, a few years ago, I was like, wow, everyone is coming out of extreme religious situations. Really? (laughs) Um, And it's it's not all my clients, but there's a large percentage of clients that I see that came out of very restrictive, difficult religious situations. And that's not what made them polyamorous, but it becomes a big challenge into their polyamory because there's so much internalized shame, guilt, judgment that came from religion. And when we think about polyamory being very feminine and matriarchal and expansive, organized religion is often the opposite. It's very closed and rigid and patriarchal. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's even why some people are drawn to it because it's maybe the opposite of what they came from. And it feels like a safe haven for them, even thinking of that from an attachment perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious what, and this is just kind of a philosophical thing, so I don't expect you to have an answer, but I come from a lens of trauma healing called NARM, Neuroaffective Relational Model. Actually, you talk about Diane, Diane Poole Heller. Heller. Larry Heller is the guy who developed it, her ex-husband. Oh, okay. Yeah. So so you may be interested in checking it out because it's very attachment based. And I think about two sides of the same coin. So if I have experienced a rigid upbringing, sometimes I cling to that because that feels safe. And sometimes I overshoot on the other side, overcompensate. But then there's this space in the middle where it's actually organic and it's Mm -hmm. coming from in NARM, we would call it adult consciousness, really of stepping into it authentically instead of doing it as a reaction. And so I'm just curious what authentic sexuality in our like cultural landscape will look like, because right now we're on the two extremes, I think, more globally, either we're rigid sexually or we're like over overcompensating. So again, I don't even that's not even really a question. I just (laughs) philosophizing about what what sexual utopia from an organic place will look like. I love it. I mean, I love this question of even I'm going to walk away from this conversation thinking about, is there even authentic sexuality? Like, right? Like, say more, dig in there. Is this, do we even see it? You know, like how much of sexuality is conditioned? I mean, I remember reading once that there's a certain indigenous culture that breasts are not sexual at all. Like (laughs) nothing about the boobs is sexual and like say that to an American and it's just like unfathom, you know, like 
like you can't breastfeed in public in the States because it's too sexual. So it's like, oh, wow. So what is authentic sexuality? I don't know. I mean, I think traditions that get into like sacred sexuality and Tantra are trying to Mm -hmm. access more of that raw primalness. But what would, I mean, a sexual utopia, I guess, could be where no matter like what anyone wants to explore, if it's consensual, it's okay. No matter who they want to explore it with, assuming it's adult and consenting, right? Right. Without shame and without judgment. Yeah. I guess a sexual utopia would be like, why would kink even be taboo? (laughs) That's exactly what I was thinking. Like in kink circles, it is accepted. Whatever floats your boat, people are like, okay, cool. That's not my thing, but here's where you can experience that. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. So same thing. And then it's not even then vanilla isn't seen now as a thing to be ashamed of. <laughs> right. And that's starting to happen too. People are feel ashamed that they just want sweet vanilla sex. And it's like, there's nothing wrong with that. That's my husband. Yeah, that's wonderful. I'm, I'm saying way too much about him. He'll be so mortified, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you were touching on something too about the swinging of the pendulum and um, thinking of it from attachment. My grandmother was extremely anxiously preoccupied onto my mother for several reasons, valid reasons. And so she was very strict. She was very rigid. My mom grew up in Brooklyn and literally going to college in Manhattan was too far. Whoa. Yeah, like too far. My mom should have went to music school and been like a Broadway ingenue and my grandma wouldn't allow that, you know? And so my mom swung the other way and was Mm. extremely permissive with me. Mm. That didn't work either. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so it wasn't an authentic parenting experience that she was giving me of really attuning to me. She was just still in reaction to her mother. I can relate to that too. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. I'm also thinking about how my hope is that younger generations will have potentially more access to real authenticity because as therapy has become more of the norm and people are seeking it out rather than trying to hide it and we know more about psychology and what is true and what were just stupid patriarchal things. And so our cultural understanding of how to parent, how to be in relationship, how to create and foster secure attachment. I'm hopeful keep shifting in the right direction where we're going to be happier and healthier one day, I hope. Yes, (laughs) fingers crossed. Yeah, and I think that's probably a lot of why both of us do the work that we do because it's like, Mm -hmm. here's yeah, I want to contribute to this momentum continuing. Yeah, I've I've one client, I have several clients who are parents, but but just one that I'm thinking of. And, you know, she was talking about not wanting to fuck up her son, because of course, that's right. every parent thing. You try not to fuck up your kid. And we just talked about how her mom was severely abused. And even though her mom really struggled with her mental health in her lifetime, she didn't overtly abuse her daughter. Yeah. And how not only is trauma passed down in generations, but so is resilience. And so is the desire mm. for health. That's beautiful. I'm really glad to hear you say that. Yeah, because we can focus on just the inheritance of trauma. And it's real even on a genetic level. Yeah. Do you want to talk more about that? I'll talk about trauma all day long. Yeah. I mean, basically that I think up to five generations before us, we can see within our genes 
epigenetic expression of our genes changes depending Mm -hmm. on like what our great grandparents were going through. An easy example is one or two generations after Holocaust survivors have different serotonin levels in their brain, have more likely to have hypervigilance and anxiety Mm -hmm. disorders. So the physical inheritance is real, but you're also right. The resilience is also passed down. And I think people don't give themselves enough credit of how much they can stop the continuation of that. And I'm right now thinking from a social justice perspective about Black folks and both the inheritance of trauma and the inheritance of resilience. Yes. And the strength of the genes to endure. Yeah. And even, I mean, that we can get into things like culture. Like there's a lot of resilience. I mean, it's called white fragility for a reason. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. there's really a black cultural resilience. It's quite powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a perfect example too, is a lot of people of color, but specifically black people in America are struggling with the, you know, multi-generational trauma and it's mm-hmm. showing up in their expressions and their bodies in ways that they get labeled as if it's an individual problem. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, this is a cultural sickness that they're having to live with. Absolutely. And I'm, again, this I sometimes I ask non-question questions, but it's really <laughs> just so we can philosophize together. But right. some sort of correlation with healing attachment to also shifting our health, our relationship with our bodies and the way our bodies can show up based on healing that attachment. Absolutely. Yes. Oh, yeah. I didn't just make that up. Oh, good. You didn't just make that up. <laughs> no, you're just on it. Yeah. Well, we need to become more embodied to heal our attachment. And then naturally, once we're more embodied, we're going to be paying attention to our health, right? Whether that's physical health, what do I need? What does this body actually need within a day or a week to feel healthy and, mm-hmm. and following the rhythms, thinking of rituals, what are my food and waking and sleeping rituals and routines that I need? But then the psychological health as well. Yeah, that as we're healing our attachment, we're becoming more psychologically healthy for sure. And I just want to give a warning to listeners that if you have not embarked on an embodied journey, it first is very painful because (laughs) you are out of your body for a reason. And to get back in your body, you realize all of the pain that whether it's physical pain or emotional pain that you've been avoiding. So caution, do not do it alone. (laughs) It's so true. Yeah, exactly. And then there's usually some really wise strategies, avoidance Mm -hmm. strategies, addiction strategies in place Mm -hmm. to keep us out of our body, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I had studied sensory motor psychotherapy mm-hmm. and had started to practice that with clients. And I had one client, we did some of that work, and then she went back out and used her drug of choice and then came back to me after several months and said, Sarah, I was not in my body for a reason. And you putting me back in my body actually was bad. Right. And in my NARM training, I've, I've recognized there's a difference between embodied in terms of like literally getting people in their body and being, I'm almost going to say in communion with mm. their body. I think those are different. And I mean, the second one is obviously sounds more spiritual, but I, th- I think it is related. Yeah. Can you say more about that? <laughs> <sighs> All right. Now, how do I put this is the problem. Sometimes I feel like I'm talking about concepts that 
don't necessarily have human words that go Mm -hmm. with them. Yeah. But my experience with NARM and my shift into a more embodied consciousness is it's a mind body spirit connection Mm -hmm. that is both physical and non-physical. And I know, (laughs) does that make sense? It makes sense to me. Yeah. If the listeners have been hanging out this long for almost four years, they're probably on board. They're feeling you right now. Yeah. Yeah. And to just from some of the somatic therapies to just pay attention to the body is also missing a part of the work. Yeah. And I think what you're talking to makes me think of internal family systems again. Mm-hmm. Of, right. Sometimes if we hit wounds too quickly without working with the parts that are protecting those wounds. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, in that system, sometimes you have to even ask permission from the yeah. protectors. Right. Mm-hmm. from the addiction, can I actually have permission to access the pain and how do we manage it differently? Yeah, I got the opportunity to interview Dick Schwartz twice for another podcast. Amazing. So y'all can go to Transforming Trauma and listen to the Dick Schwartz interviews. And we're about to publish another one where he and Larry really talk about the spiritual aspects of IFS and NARM. And it's clear that that modality is so spiritually resonant. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's what I love about it is it bridges. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even in so many ways, I think as we become more embodied and more in our humanness, it looks like spiritual things. Yeah. Because from a grounded, secure place, we can then go higher. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And to even talk about spirituality and attachment, I think We can have spiritual awakenings and insights, but ones that are actually integrated without secure attachment first. Right. Because, I mean, and that speaks to some folks who seek out psychedelics because they want to have this transcendent experience, but then become psychotic and have psychotic breaks because there's no ground there. Exactly. Or they don't integrate it. So they keep needing the substance and the journey again and again and again Mm -hmm. in order to access that reality, which is totally accessible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is just a delightful conversation. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I didn't know we'd go to some of these places. I love it. Yeah. Though we are nearing towards the end, so we should probably bring it back to the ground a little bit. I'm curious because I didn't get to this part in the book yet, but you definitely talked with Tristan on her podcast about how some therapists have viewed polyamory as like, it's not a legit thing and it's not something we should support. And I'm I'm curious how, if there's a therapist listening who's like, polyamory is just because y'all are sex fiends and you just want to fuck everybody. From an attachment perspective, how do you sell this to other therapists? Totally. Yeah. I mean, a simple one would just be each child is differently attached to their parents and we can have multiple attachment figures and we have multiple attachments to our own children. But you're talking about just the validity of non-monogamy in general. Well, the book talks about the little bit of research that there is that shows that people who are non-monogamous are not doing non-monogamy because they're insecurely attached. Actually, you have to be quite securely attached in order to do it well. And you've got to work on your attachment in ways that many monogamous folks aren't prompted to in Mm -hmm. monogamy. Just thinking too about why we as therapists struggle with certain concepts. And it's usually because of our own wounding, right? And if, Mm -hmm. if I 
am a therapist who I can use addiction, for example, because that's one of my specialties. You know, somebody who's in recovery can be totally opposed to moderation management because, well, it didn't work for me, so it's not going to work for anybody else. So somebody who (laughs) is not necessarily securely attached may think it's absolutely impossible to have secure attachments with multiple people if our own wounding is there. Totally. Yes, that will come up. And I think as therapists, there is no such thing as true neutrality. Right. Right. We are very influenced by our worldviews. Of course, there's bias. I'm grateful to my narrative therapy training that was like, no, you Mm. are biased. The importance is knowing and owning your bias. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So that we can prevent it from doing harm. So, yeah, a lot of people are very uncomfortable with the idea of non-monogamy. And that bleeds into the therapy room, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I feel lucky in Chicago, we have a really robust network of therapists who support non-monogamy and kink. And it's really cool to see people trading resources and, you know, getting referrals and and all that sort of stuff. So yay, Chicago. Yay. That's great. I should get some of those because I need referrals. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll connect you with the network. Yeah. Please. It's, yeah. I think it's called the K-Pact, Kink Poly Aware Therapist Network. Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we're getting towards the end of the hour and I'd love for you to be able to advertise all your stuff. So where can people find you and get connected with you? Great. So my website is jessicafern.com and the book Polysecure is sort of on all the places that you can get the books. <laughs> but go to bookshop, yes. not Amazon. Go bookshop, to bookshop goes to local booksellers. Yeah. yeah. Or um, Thorn Tree Press is the publisher. So you can look on Thorn Tree Press and it has all the places that you can buy the book as well. And there is the audiobook of it that I did. In oh, COVID. you recorded it? I did record it. Yeah. Good job. Yeah, during COVID. So you probably hear like my neighbor's kid or dog outside oh, <laughs> like in the That's closet. Great. Yeah. And then in February, this coming February, 2021, I have a secure attachment with self becoming your own safe haven live online course that I'll be doing. Mm. So it's a four month course and it's a deep dive into sort of healing attachment, learning how to do self-regulation and yeah, becoming your own safe haven. So people can find that on my website if they're interested. Yeah. Great. And any social media places you want people to follow you? I am not good on social media at all. Okay. I know. Okay. No worries. Yeah. We don't have to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jessica, this has been really awesome. Mm -hmm. I just, as I'm reading the book, I mean, you're so smart and the way that you're putting some of these concepts together, I've not heard before. So, mm. and two, I also, I sent this book to a monogamous friend because the the initial chapters on attachment and, yeah. and the nested trauma model, like all of those things are so relevant to people who practice monogamy. So the book is, it's not just for people who identify as poly. Yeah, it's true. I had someone in Germany reach out and they were like, my monogamous clients need this, but they might not be open to it because it talks about non-monogamous. And I was like, I know part one and part three can be for anybody. Right. And how great for a monogamous person to read this book, because let's center non-traditional relationships for once. (laughs) Exactly. Right. So just thank you for your contribution. And Mm. I just really appreciated this, this conversation. Yes. Thank you so much. You're doing amazing work. So it feels great to be here with you. Thank you. Yeah. 
So if you haven't already Googled and added to cart the book Polysecure, make sure you do that immediately because it is really, really good. And like we mentioned in the episode, it is, of course, written centering non-monogamous relationships, but you don't have to be non-monogamous to get this book. It's good as hell. So thanks, as always, to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for our album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. To find more about Jessica, you can visit us on our website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. Until next time, bye-bye.